If you haven't been with us for a while, we have been slowly making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We started it, I think, in June. I didn't check, but I think it was in June. We got a little ways through, and then we took a break, then we did a little more, and we took another break. And so now we're back into it. We'll be into it for a little while, until Easter at least. And if you recall, we've talked about how Matthew is a Jew, and he's most likely writing to Jewish Christians. And he's writing his book in a very specific way. His book is organized in a very deliberate way into five sections. And those five sections, they start with Jesus speaking, Jesus teaching, Jesus giving instruction, and then they're followed by Jesus doing. And so we see Jesus saying some things about the kingdom of God, and then we see Jesus living out the kingdom of God. And then he says some more things about the kingdom, and then he lives out the kingdom. And this happens five times in the Gospel of Matthew. And scholars think the reason is because all of the good Jewish men and women who are trying to figure out how to follow Christ, they would have quickly recognized that their, uh, their big hero, Moses, he wrote five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so Matthew is using this uh, style of writing to illuminate their hearts to go, oh, Jesus, Jesus is bigger. Jesus is better than Moses. And this is a theme that starts at the very beginning of the book, and we won't rehash all of it. But the Sermon on the Mount, which we finished last time we were in the book, is the first section where Jesus is speaking. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about what it means to be a citizen of that kingdom. He says, that, you know, if you want to follow God, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, if you want to be a disciple of mine, this is the way that you can anticipate your life looking. And at the end of that section... Matthew says that everybody was just wowed by Jesus because he spoke with authority, not like the scribes. See, the scribes at the time, the, the professional Bible teachers, they used a lot of quotations. They had a lot of footnotes. They would say, well, so-and-so a couple generations ago thought this about this passage, and my teacher taught me that about that passage, and they would just kind of play it safe and just kind of share the information but Jesus said things like, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this other thing. And he would quote the Old Testament, and then he, would, he wouldn't deny the Old Testament, but he would shift it a little, and he would say, this is what I am telling you to do. And, and the people were just blown away by his authority. And so then Matthew's going to transition at the end of chapter 7 to chapters 8 through 10, and he's going to show Jesus working in the world. And we're going to start chapter 8 uh, this morning and see some things that Jesus was doing as demonstrations of the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk about three big ideas this morning. The first big idea is authority. Um, the, cr the crowds were astonished because of Jesus' authority. This is going to come up several times. Authority is power, uh, but it's not, it's not ultimate power. It's derived power. It's, it's power granted by someone else. Uh, many years ago, eight, I think, I was a brand new employee at the Salvation Army Croc Center. I had a very small role there. And I was walking down the hall, 
and there were these two women sitting in these chairs, and one of them was doing a tarot card reading for the other one. And uh, at the very least, tarot cards are dumb. And at the most, they're, they're, they're potentially demonic. They're a way that people can get engaged with the spiritual world in dangerous ways. And the Salvation Army Croc Center is a Christian community center, and, and I just thought, man, that shouldn't be going on here. Then I walked past. Because who am I? I just got a job there. What do I know? And then I went and to the back, and I, talked, I, I ran by my boss's office, and I said, you know, there's two ladies out there doing a tarot card reading? And he goes, what? Go back out there and tell them to knock it off. And so I went back out there, and I said, hey, excuse me, we really can't be doing that there. And then they were mad, and they stormed out, and it was whatever. But the weird thing was, nothing changed about me in that moment, but all of a sudden, I had authority. My boss said, in the name of Major Ben Markham of the Salvation Army, you go out there and tell them to knock it off. Whereas I didn't have any power of myself, but I had the power of my boss behind me, and that gave me the confidence to go and tell these people that they needed to stop uh, their demonic card game. And this is what authority is. Jesus has come as the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer. And he has come under the authority of God the Father. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm doing the will of my Father. If you hear me speak, you've heard the Father speak. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. He's not operating as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is operating as the servant of his Father. Jesus' authority is derived from his Father. And we see that if, if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is a letter written to the church in a town called Philippi by the Apostle Paul. And Paul's in prison, and he's, he's writing to them. And he says in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And what Paul says is very interesting because he says that Jesus didn't come to earth primarily to flex his God muscles. He came to earth as a human man empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a perfect life, the life that we can't live. And he came under the authority of the Father. And this is the way he talks. And these people recognize it. So we're going to talk a little bit about authority. The second thing we want to talk about this morning is faith. And I want to define faith as allegiance to someone based on convincing evidence of their trustworthiness. I'll say that again. Allegiance to someone based on convincing evidence of their trustworthiness. We can get this wrong all the time in our world. We talk about taking a leap of faith, about just feeling of faith. There's a song, If You Wish Upon a Star makes no difference who you are, something, something, something. I don't know. The cricket sings it. And we have this idea that faith is this thing out here. It's kind of ethereal. It's kind of uh, cloudy and fuzzy. And the reason we think this way is, is because of the Enlightenment. 
Spencer and I talk about the Enlightenment a lot, I think. It comes up a lot when we teach. But it's important. The Enlightenment was a time in human history in the 17th, 18th centuries where, where people did really important things. They decided, you know what? We're smart. We can figure stuff out. We can learn things. We can study the world. We can take observations. We can do math. And science was born. And, and, and people, I mean, and science has been an amazing thing for the human race. And the advances of using reason and experimentation and engaging with the natural world have been incredibly powerful. But an unfortunate consequence of the Enlightenment is that we decided that things that you can see and taste and touch and smell and feel, that's not the right one. There's another one. Anyway, this, the five senses, those are things that, that, are, that are facts. We can get a hold of that. And if, if we can't get a hold of it with our five senses, then it belongs in this other category, this spiritual category, this metaphysical category. And, and so then we start talking about faith like that, and, and faith becomes, faith isn't really real. It's something that's out there that you just, you know, I just believe it. I don't have any evidence for it. I don't really have any reason to believe it. It just makes me feel good. And if, you, if that's your thing, that's fine. But if not, there's no, you can't really grasp and hold on to faith. But that's not what biblical faith is. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews is a letter written to persecuted Jewish Christians. And in chapter 11, verse 1, the author says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. See, the author of Hebrews says that faith is something that you can hold on to. Faith is based on evidence. Faith is based on something that you know to be true. When my youngest was younger, um, she spent all of her time with us, primarily with Joanna, because I would go to work, but she spent all of her time at home. And at some point... Joanna and I felt like we needed to take some time off from being parents and, and like go out to dinner. And the first time this happened, Nora is dropped off at grandparents' house. And if you have kids, you know that this is, this is scary. Because what do you mean you're leaving? You never leave. You're always here. You are, you are the foundation of my world. And you're, where are you going? And because of this tendency, um, there's a show called Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which is a really bad version of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but it's okay. It's what the kids do these days. And uh, in this show, Daniel Tiger sings a song called Grown Ups Come Back. And it's like two minutes long, and it's like just grown ups come back over and over and over again. But we got to the point with Nora where we would. Joanna would, I don't want to say we, because Joanna would sing this song, Grown Ups Come Back, every time Nora got stressed out about where are you going? Remember, Grown Ups Come Back. And after a while, and even now, when we go somewhere, Nora goes, Grown Ups Come Back. <laughs> and that's not because she has blind faith, it's because she has evidence because we did come back. Every single time we come back and she can build on her understanding of her relationship with us in the past and have faith 
in that relationship with us in the future. And this is what biblical faith is. It's allegiance to someone, trust in someone based on convincing evidence of their trustworthiness. It's not a leap in the dark. It's not blind. Faith is developed and it grows as it's exercised. The more you use it, the more faith uh, lives in you. So authority, faith, and then the third thing we're going to talk about is physical healing. This, the passage is about physical healing, and, and this, is, this is important because the, the story of the Bible is that everything started out good, right? In the first two chapters of Genesis, God creates everything good, and then we screw it up, we sin, and everything kind of goes sideways, People are cursed. The, the ground doesn't produce. There's danger, and things start to become broken. And if we're not careful, we can start to believe that Jesus came to die on the cross to save us from our sins, and that's it. And that's absolutely true, and that's probably the pinnacle of the gospel, but Jesus came to turn back the curse of Genesis 3. Jesus came to bring about the restored kingdom of God, to put all the brokenness back together. He says, I am the king, I have authority. And when he approaches someone who is sick or demon-possessed, he says, I don't want this brokenness in my kingdom, and he fixes it. And so Jesus' ministry is not just about the cross. It is about the cross, and it's incredibly important, but it's also about bringing about the kingdom of God, bringing it back to the way it was supposed to be. And we can fall into two extremes when we talk about physical healing. We can talk about, we can fall into one extreme, which I, I had a conversation with a guy this week who just doesn't believe that Jesus heals. Like he used to heal, he believes the Bible, but that time is past. That's just, he doesn't do that anymore. We've been left the Bible. We've been left just the promise of his return someday. But in the meantime, praying for healing, seeking healing is just really not, not what Jesus is about anymore. And then on the other side, we can, we can believe that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a member of the kingdom of God, you will be healed. Your illnesses will be gotten rid of. Your, your injuries will be fixed. And if you're not, then you don't have enough faith. And the problem with that is the Bible doesn't bear that out. We see plenty of people who have loads of faith, who have a passionate relationship with Jesus that for whatever reason are not healed. And so we can't assume that healing always happens, but we also can't assume that healing never happens. So we're going to walk through these three stories and, and see some examples of, of maybe some attitudes that we have about healing. And, and we could be talking about emotional healing or spiritual healing, or um, this is, these are all examples of physical healing. But if you feel like there's some brokenness in you, maybe you have an attitude like these people in these stories. And the first attitude is, is whatever's wrong with me, my illness, it's too big. In verse 1, Matthew writes, when he came down from the mountain, when Jesus came down from the mountain where he was teaching, large crowds followed him, and right away a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Leprosy is a incurable, contagious skin disease. We have a disease called Hansen's disease, which we call leprosy, and that's probably included in this, but in the, by, in the, the writing of the Bible, leprosy was probably a variety of skin diseases. And leprosy is a death sentence, both physically because it slowly eats away at your body until you cannot survive, but also socially because in the... Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, there is a, uh, a prescription for dealing with leprosy. If somebody gets a sore on their body, they need to go to the priest and show them that sore. And then the priest is going to do some experiments and he's going to sequester them for a few days and see what happens. But if they decide that the sore is growing, then that person has leprosy and they have to be removed from the presence of God's people because they're contagious. So they... They can't live at home anymore. They can't go to work anymore. They can't go to the market anymore. They can't go to the temple and worship God anymore. They have to live outside the camp. And so, in addition to knowing that you're going to die, you've lost all of your friends and family. And that's a, we, we feel like that's a pretty terrible thing, which it is. But it's also a necessary thing. If, if the leper just decided to go to the mall and give out free hugs, he would be putting everyone in danger. And so the testimony of the Old Testament is because this is a society that God wants to thrive. If you've got a contagious disease like this, you have to be put out. Now, the, the, the Bible, there's a, there's a provision in the Bible for cleansing a leper. If your leprosy is healed, there's a process to go through to go back to the priest and show him that. But the truth is, that never happens. Leprosy is incurable. It's contagious, and it's a death sentence. Lepers didn't get healed. The idea that the, the teacher from Galilee could heal this man's leprosy, that's ridiculous. Leprosy is too big. But this man, he comes anyway. He, he recognizes Jesus' authority. He calls him Lord. He pushes past how absurd his request is. Because he has faith, he believes in, based on what he's heard from Jesus, based on what he's seen from Jesus, that Jesus has authority. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The only thing in his mind standing in the way of his healing was whether or not Jesus wanted to. And so Jesus says in verse 3, or reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus says, first of all, he touches the leper, which is against the rules. Like Jesus was in danger of uh, getting the disease himself. And he says, be made clean. And it's interesting, he doesn't say, um, be healed. He doesn't say, your leprosy is gone. He says, be made clean. Because I think Jesus recognizes 
part of this is this physical illness, but part of it is the fact that he's unclean. He's not allowed to be among God's people. He's not allowed to worship in the temple. He's an outcast from society, and Jesus cares about that, cares that he is lonely and alone and without community. Jesus is interested in this man's wholeness. And so he says, go to the priest. There's a, there's a set of rituals that you can go through and the priest can examine you and, and prove, and not prove, but announce to everyone, yeah, this leper has been made clean. And then he can be reunited with the family and friends that he's been away from. So Jesus brings wholeness to this man in a situation that was impossible. And if this man had thought, Leprosy is incurable. There's no reason to ask the teacher if he can help because it's too big and this wouldn't have happened. But it might not be that we think that whatever's going on with us is too big. We might think, I'm just not worthy. In verse 5, Matthew writes, when he entered Capernaum, A centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. And he said to him, am I to come and heal him? So a centurion, a centurion is a Roman soldier and he's responsible to lead about a hundred men. Centurion means a hundred. And he's stationed in Capernaum. This man is not a Jewish man. He's a Gentile. He's a non-Jew, and he's not just a regular non-Jew. He's a member of the occupying army. We have to remember that the people of God are enslaved by the Romans. The Roman government was vicious and brutal, and they didn't allow these people to be free, and they taxed them and took their money and their property and used those things to oppress them even more. And this man is a representative of that brutal regime. And furthermore, Jews don't go into the houses of Gentiles. It's against the rules. Talking about being unclean, Jews would be defiled by spending time in the house of a non-Jew. And we see this in the book of Acts where in a similar exchange, there is another centurion that wants to hear the gospel. and, And Peter goes to his house and goes, you know, I'm not supposed to go in there, but God told me I should. But at this time, Jesus says in verse 7, and I love this, the the CSB version, I think, does a good job of translating this as a question. Am I to come and heal him? You're asking me to come to your house? Don't you know that Jewish teachers don't go to the house of Gentile occupiers? And it's interesting... We know that the gospel is for everyone. We talked last week about unity and and, and how it breaks down those walls. But during Jesus' ministry, he doesn't go to Gentile homes. The only time we see him inside a building of a Gentile is when he's forced to go see Pontius Pilate at his house before he's crucified. And so it's like Jesus knows it's breaking the rules to go to this man's home. Jesus knows that this isn't the kind of person that a Jewish rabbi should associate with. This man doesn't really deserve to be healed. 
The idea that this man would ask for anything from Jesus is pretty ridiculous. But look at verse 8. Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, am, I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. To say to th- I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, the centurion agrees with Jesus. You're right. I am not worthy for you to come into my home. But he says, I see something in you. Because, see, I am under authority, and that's what gives me authority to lead my men. He says, if, if I were not under the authority of the Roman military, if I didn't have Caesar behind me, these guys wouldn't do what I tell them to do. But they do what they're told because of the authority that I am under. And I see something in you, Jesus. You are under the authority of something so big that I know all you have to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. Hearing this, verse 10, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus told the centurion, go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. And so Jesus is just honestly surprised by this man's faith. And he says, no one I've seen in all of the people of God has faith like this. No one trusts in my authority like this man. And then he tells a story that just totally runs counter to what the Jewish people understood about their relationship with God. There is a very specific kind of person that God pays attention to in the Jewish mind, and that's a Jewish person. The Jews are the people of God. Everyone else, and we talked about this again last week when we were talking about Jews and Gentiles, the Jewish people thought the Gentiles were fuel for the fires of hell. And Jesus completely tears this idea apart because there's a very well-established Hebrew tradition that at the end of the world, at the coming of the kingdom, there's going to be a big party, there's going to be a big banquet. And it makes sense that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are like the founders of the Jewish people, they would be at this banquet. But what Jesus says is shocking. He says, many people from all over the world will come and sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, some of the Jewish people themselves, they're not going to get in. In fact, what awaits them is judgment and sorrow and anger. And while he, in verse 7, asks this question, you want me to come to your house? Like, that's against the rules. He's still anticipating this time when those walls are going to be broken down. 
and he heals this man. And even though Jesus seems to indicate that this man is not worthy to be healed, and even though the centurion says, I'm not worthy to, be, to have my servant healed, he asks anyway, and Jesus heals him. So maybe you feel like whatever is going on in your life is just too big for Jesus. Maybe you feel like you're not worthy. Like what, however you've lived your life or the kind of person you are or, or the way you've been told about how God loves people or doesn't love other people, maybe you think you're just not worthy of Jesus. But maybe you think, and this third one I think is my favorite, maybe you think whatever is wrong is too small. Verse 14, Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and then she got up and began to serve him. We read about this in Mark's gospel as well, and we read that Jesus' disciples told Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, they're, they're at Peter's house. Peter's married. Uh, Peter's uh, we don't know if both of Peter's in-laws are alive or just his mother-in-law. We're not given all that detail, but typically households were fairly large families of many generations, and this, this woman is lying in bed with a fever. And the story doesn't tell us if this is a life-threatening illness, doesn't tell us that this is, you know, something that's going to end in her death. She's just kind of sick. I get fevers. I'm sure, you know, you ever had a fever? It's like, yeah, I've got a fever. Go have some soup. Mark does say it's a high fever, but that, again, doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything long-term wrong here. In fact, we just see that basically the fever is just preventing her from running her household well. She's in bed, and she doesn't want to be. And yet Jesus comes in and, and touches her and heals the fever, and then she just gets up and goes about doing her job of being hospitable to her guests. And I wonder sometimes, like, are there things in our lives, whether they're physical or, or spiritual or emotional, and we just go, you know what? I'm not going to ask God about that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I've got a headache or this just, this thing that just never goes away and it's, it's kind of, it kind of aches, but you know what? It's just not a big deal. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask. Jesus, Jesus doesn't need to be bothered with this little thing. And yet we see Jesus take care of this little thing for Peter's mother-in-law without a thought. Verse 16, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. So maybe, maybe sometimes you feel like whatever is going on in your body or your soul is just too big. There's just, there's no point in talking to God about that. There's no point in asking Jesus for help because it's just too big. 
Maybe you think that where you've been, what you've done, what your circumstances are, just you're not worthy. Jesus is not going to take care of you because you don't deserve it. Or maybe you just think like what I'm dealing with is a waste of Jesus' time. I'm not going not to bother him with it. But that night at Peter's house, people came from all over because of what they heard about Jesus, because of what they believed, the faith that they had in his authority. Sick people, demon-possessed people. Matthew says many people. And Jesus healed them all. And he quotes this verse, he himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. This comes from the book of Isaiah. You can turn there if you want. It's Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah was a prophet of God. The prophets in the Old Testament were spokesmen of God, and they wrote these uh, prophecies, these letters to the people, and and many times they were pretty uh, judgmental because the people of God uh, had gone astray and they needed to be led back. But there's this section in Isaiah when he's just got done saying how things are going to go badly for you, Israel, because you have gone astray. But he says there's hope, and he starts talking about this person called the servant of God. My servant, he says. And in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2, talking about the servant, he says, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we were healed by his wounds." We all went astray like sheep, and we've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And if you've been in church for a while, you maybe recognize those words, and and they very often come into play when we talk about the work of Jesus on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. We know that as we're getting closer to the Easter season. We're going to talk about the crucifixion and Jesus being pierced in his hands and his feet. And and he took our iniquities, our sins on himself and paid for them on the cross. And that's absolutely true. But that's not what Matthew uses this passage to illustrate. Matthew isn't denying the work of Jesus on the cross. He's going to tell us about it at the end of his book. But he's saying Jesus actually takes away our diseases. Jesus actually heals us. He has the power. He has the authority. Yahweh's servant, the authority of God that's given to Jesus, the Son, to heal. And we can read passages like that and think, you know, someday I will be healed. Someday, when the kingdom comes, there will be healing. And that's absolutely true. But Matthew says, no, the the power of the gospel is not just for someday, it's for today. 
We live in a world full of brokenness, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God and Jesus is making all things new. And so if you are thinking, you know, there's something going on in my life, there's an illness I have, there's an emotional struggle that I'm dealing with, there's mental confusion or spiritual oppression, and it's just beyond overcoming. I'm just going to have to deal with it. There's no point in bringing it to Jesus. The leper would disagree with you. If you think that the way I've lived my life, the choices I've made, the things that I've done, I'm not the kind of person that Jesus spends any time with. I am not worthy of his attention. The centurion would disagree with you. And if you think the things in my life, the physical challenges, the emotional hurts, whatever it is, are just not a big deal. I just need to suck it up and deal with it because it's all on me. I'm not going to bother Jesus with it. Peter's mother-in-law would disagree with you. So as we close, I just I want to read a few verses. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but there's some themes throughout the Bible. We're going to start in Psalm 35. Psalm 35:27 says, Let those who want my vindication shout for joy and be glad. Let them continually say, The Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servants' well-being. In Psalm 41, starting in verse 1, Happy is one who is considerate of the poor. The Lord will save him in a day of adversity. The Lord will keep him and preserve him, and he will be blessed in the land. You will not give him over to the desires of his enemies." The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed. You will heal him on the bed where he lies. Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. I can turn back to Matthew, chapter 11. Verse 28 says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus' half brother James writes a little book in the back of the Bible. James chapter 5. Starting in verse 14 says, is anyone among you sick? You should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The, power of a, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. And lastly, the very last chapter 
the very last book of the Bible. Revelation 22. It's talking about the kingdom of God. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. All throughout Scripture, the trajectory of the kingdom of God is one where Jesus is bringing things back to the way they're supposed to be. And while it's true that we aren't always healed in this life, we will all be healed someday. The physical ailments that we struggle with, the emotional hurts, the mental concerns, the spiritual issues, they will all be made right someday. But I think we get... We get too far into the future, and we don't remember that Jesus is in the process of making things right, right now. And so as we read this book and say we're going to live our lives under it, I think we have to say that Jesus is still healing, and Jesus wants to heal. Jesus wants to make things right because God is honored in that. The story of healing is, look what Jesus has done. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, and Jesus talked about this in his last message in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, seek, keep on seeking, and ask, and keep on asking, and knock, and keep on knocking. And, and there's no expectation in this book that, you know, we should just stop because Jesus is too busy or Jesus doesn't love me enough or whatever I'm dealing with is too big for him. Those are all lies. I want us to be a people that believe, that trust, have faith in the authority of Jesus to do whatever he wants to make us whole. And so before we share communion and and sing a little bit more, here's my challenge. Everybody's dealing with something. I don't know what everybody's challenges are. I don't need to know what everybody's challenges are. But if you know what that is, and and, and if you're thinking "It's, it's too big for God to deal with, or I'm not worthy to be, for it to be dealt with, or it's, it's too small for God to deal with. My challenge to you is try it. Put, take Jesus at his word. Lean into him. Have faith in his authority. And see what happens. 
It might be like Paul that, that God will say, you know what, my grace is sufficient for you. I want you to live with whatever I have allowed you to have because it's going to make you stronger and it's going to bring me glory and it's going to draw people to myself and that's fine. But it might be that Jesus wants to go, you know what, I want to heal you. I want to fix that brokenness so that you can go out and tell other people how good I am. So, so pray, be bold in your prayer, ask and seek and knock and keep doing it. There's a story that Jesus tells about an unjust judge who gets so tired of this woman asking for justice that he goes, fine, just leave me alone. I'll do what you want. And that's not the heart of God, but the illustration is that God wants us to keep asking. Talk to your community about it. If you're, you, sh you should be in community with other believers and, and there, there should be opportunities to say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Will you pray with me? Will you pray for me? Can we seek my healing together? This verse in James says, if you're sick, come up to the elders and seek prayer. We can do that. That's what, the, that's what the body of Christ is here for. I've said this before, but I, I, think, I think I get afraid that if I ask God for something and he doesn't do it the way I want him to do it, then it makes him look bad. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't need me to protect him from being, you know, making him look bad. That's just not my job. My job is to seek him as a son and say, I want whatever you want from me, but this is what I'd like. Can you, can you do something here? So that's just the encouragement in this passage today is that these three people were healed and they didn't, need to be healed. They, some of them didn't deserve to be healed. One of them just, there's no way he possibly could have been healed. But he was. Because they asked. Because they sought Jesus. Because they believed in his authority. And I would just encourage us all, rather than defaulting to, nah, Jesus doesn't do that sort of thing anymore. Default to, let's ask and see what happens. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.